So this is the 101. How many of you are really 101ers? How many of you have not followed my work at all? Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, I just maybe heard one or two things and then madly decided on a whim to come out to Belfast. Not many or a little bit. Like, uh, how many of you, ha say, haven't read any of the books or listened to any, like, long seminars? There's one, two. Guys in the, in the bar, yep. <laughs> um, okay, so, so this is not a 101 then, because they're all just, or, or you don't understand a word I say usually, that's, that's the key, okay. Um, what I'm gonna do, I mean, a lot of this will just be a bit of a Q&A, chance for you to ask questions and whatever, but I will start off and do, I'll maybe talk for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and set a kind of like a, a context for the type of work that I do. Uh, there's a number of ways I can look at it. I could go back and look at how it all started, like a genealogy um, of, of Icon and some of the community stuff I did in Belfast. Uh, or I can do it logically, I can talk about how my thinking has changed over the years, how it's developed. Um, uh, or I could just do mime, I could mime and, and flag waving and do symbols. But uh, I'll, uh, I'll do, let's see, what's that? Logical, there you go, I'll do logical. Um, okay, but I will tell you one weird brief historical thing, which is how I got into the question of religion, why I got interested in it. And it was actually because I am one of the few people who ever got saved through street evangelism, right? I am that one person who they did Jesus mime. Uh, one of the guys in Snow Patrol was, was doing it at the time. And uh, I, I was caught in the pagan sandwich. If you know what the pagan sandwich is, you do some mime and there's a row of Christians and then the pagans come in and then you do a row of Christians behind them. That's the, that's the pagan sandwich, they can't escape and then you start talking about Jesus. And I was coming out of the movie Gremlins 2 at the time, <laughs> very good movie, uh, with, a, with a pile of friends and there was this group from the US who were over working with this uh, evangelical charismatic church. And uh, I got caught up in talking and actually it was beautiful. The only thing that happened, which is significant, is they, they didn't talk to me about anything religious, but they just listened. Uh, they, I, they sat down and maybe they asked a couple of questions. Uh, and then I, was, I just talked about life and talked about stuff that I'd never accessed before. So really they accessed a part of me that hadn't been able to breathe. And one of my friends had a very intense experience uh, and, and had this born again experience that night, uh, which included laying on of hands and writhing on the floor and all of that kind of stuff. Do you need to do something? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and about a week later, this stuff still sat with me. In fact, so much so that I had this breakdown on Saturday night, I was going out to a party, and I just started crying for no reason, and I ran to the church, and I went in, and there was like people in the church, and I went down, there was a little huddle of people praying, and uh, I went in, and some of them were praying for me actually at the time, which was very bizarre, but uh, I, was, I just felt this, this complete breakdown, and about a week later, I... Uh, went to the church. They did an altar call. My goodness, I was, I was hit with an altar call. That's another crazy thing. And I went to the front, and that was the beginning of it. Now, what was interesting about that experience is that three things happened. Uh, I came home to my parents, and I said, I am no longer your son. Right? They're sitting having a gin and tonic in the dining room, and I'm like, come in, sit them down. I'm no longer your son. And uh, they were like, oh, that's interesting. Very right, good. 
just difficult day. <laughs> you know, what happened? Uh, they were very gracious. Then the second thing I did was I got rid of all my stuff. So I got all the stuff in my room and I moved it out into the living room, which has probably annoyed them more than me telling them I was no longer their son. It's like all my junk was in their living room. Uh, and then I stopped going to tech where I was doing this computer studies course. Uh, now, the, the fascinating thing about that experience is one, I didn't have any experience at all. I didn't feel anything. There was not, when I went to the front, there was this anticlimactic thing. Nothing happened. But everything changed. Nothing changed in the physical world, and yet everything changed in terms of my subjectivity. So when I told my parents that I was no longer their son, I think what I was trying to say in a way that I couldn't articulate is that I feel no longer caught up in the cultural way that I was brought up. Somehow I feel like I have been subtracted from Protestant, Northern Irish, 20th century, whatever I grew up in. Good as some of it is, bad as some of it is, I just no longer feel connected to it. I felt radically free for a second. And then secondly, when I got rid of my stuff, there wasn't an ethical dimension in the normal sense. It wasn't the St. Francis of Assisi, I wanted to give all my stuff to the poor. I just looked at everything I owned and it no longer meant anything. Because your possessions often tell you symbolically what you value. And I just didn't value any of them anymore. Uh, I had a poster of uh, Wendy James from Transvision Vamp, <laughs> who I really liked, got rid of that. I think I, I was a very sad teenager. I think I had some fancy car thing on my wall. No longer cared about that. Probably a Ferrari Testarossa. I was very into Miami Vice. Um, uh, Don Johnson, great. So I, I got, I just, it just no longer reflected what I valued. And then when I stopped going to tech, it was just because that's how my life was unfolding. I wasn't choosing anything about my life. I was just falling into the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And I just fell into doing computers for no other reason than maybe I was in a class the day when somebody said, oh, there's a, there's a course you can do on computer studies. And suddenly again, I felt that I was no longer compelled by that destiny. So even if though I had this really conservative type of conversion experience and actually went into a very conservative, even fundamentalist church and became a young earther. I was fighting for young earth and, and uh, six day creation and all of that. Um, it, that didn't stick. That wasn't the important thing. That was kind of like a, an add on. What was interesting was I had an experience of radical subtraction. That was what happened. I couldn't articulate it at the time, but whatever happened, I was subtracted from the entire ideological edifice that dictated how I viewed the world, how I interacted with the world. I felt momentarily free in the world, but not of it. And then what I did is I then just became a fundamentalist for a few years, right? Um, but always that experience stuck with me and I became increasingly interested not in religion as a set of beliefs or a set of practices or something that's added to you, but the idea that maybe the heart of this is a radical subtraction from something. It's not that you have a, you know, there's a certain set of correct beliefs that you need to have, but it's a way of being in the world, and it's, it's, it's connected with some sort of um, uh, withdrawal libidinal withdrawal, and by libido I just mean desire, that our desire fundamentally has changed. And that's what set me off on my vocation. 
And that's what I've been doing ever since. And that's what parotheology has been attempting to explore. And we're going to get into that loads in this week, and we're going to talk about it. We're going to connect it with uh, Jameson Webster's work, with Todd McGowan's work, etc. That's where it started. Now, the first people who gave me a way of articulating this were the mystics. So what I did is I had no education, came out of school with one GCSE, left school at 16. But I started to become interested in understanding what had happened to me, to kind of find a frame that might help me navigate my new experience. Uh, and as I said, it's an, it, a religious experience is not an experience of something, because you can do that through drugs. It's what changes your experience of everything. So I'm like, what does that mean? What does it mean to reconfigure, to fundamentally change? Uh, and which again is the theme of this, this, week, this year's wake. Um, and I wanted to find a language. And the mystics started to provide me with that. Because the mystics um, talk about how we are captured, caught up in something that we cannot grasp. So the mystics were very interested in the idea that there is an epistemological incomprehension that is a direct connection with um, what they would call the ground of being, with this, this, this kind of what we are, we are immersed in something we cannot grasp, like a ship sunken in the depths of the ocean. The ship contains the ocean, the ocean contains the ship, but the ship only contains a fragment of the ocean, the ocean contains all of the ship. Uh, now, central to this is Anselm, and by the way, I can waffle for hours, so I, I don't want to do that. But I do want to say that Anselm, if you want to understand mysticism, I actually think Anselm is the person to read. Um, he put it in the most succinct way in what's called the ontological argument. If you know the ontological argument, it sounds very bizarre at first. It's the idea that um, the word God means the greatest, th that than which none greater can be conceived. That's how he said it. What is God? Right, whether you believe in God or not, Anselm says, what is the definition of God? He says, well, it's that than which none greater can be conceived. We all agree with the definition. It's just some people you know, say God exists, some people say God doesn't exist. Now, Anselm now has you in a trap. You don't, you don't know it yet. So then Anselm comes in and goes, okay, so if God doesn't exist, then that than which none greater can be conceived, right, which is the definition of God, is not that than which none greater can be conceived. Because if God doesn't exist, you can conceive of something greater than that, which is namely God that does exist. Because to exist is better than to not exist, right? So, so if you say God is that than which none greater can be conceived, right? And then you say that doesn't exist, then you go, well, well then that than which none greater can be conceived uh, isn't that. That's, that's the same thing but God. And so then Anselm goes, so the moment you say God, God exists. The, the moment that, that, that God by definition exists because you're otherwise caught in a logical contradiction, God who must exist doesn't exist. That's what you're saying. So it's a logical game. There's, there, there, there's errors in it. Don't worry. It's just very clever as a philosophical thing. But the point is not the argument. Forget the argument. That's just what philosophers talk about in philosophy class. We can talk about it at the pub if you want. Um, I mean, Kant basically comes in and says existence isn't a category. That's, the, that's one way of uh, trying to defeat it. The point is this. Anselm gives a definition of God, and his definition of God is not the greatest thing that can be conceived. 
His definition of God is that than which none greater can be conceived. Because if you conceive of God, you can conceive of something that is greater than God. Namely, something that is so great you cannot conceive it, right? So God has to, by definition, be beyond conception. In other words, there's three levels of being. That which exists in the mind, but not in reality. If I'm going to paint a picture, right? It exists in the mind, but not in reality. The second level is what exists in the mind and in reality, which is everything, right? I, I paint the painting. It exists in the mind and in reality. And then Anselm says, but there's a possibility of something that exists in reality that cannot be contained in the mind. He says, if God exists, that would be, the, that would be God. So what, what you have there is a very succinct notion of the mystics, which is, by definition, when you enter into religion, you're entering into unknowing. That actually the world where we conceive of things is just always idolatry. And you are, and that's why within the Jewish tradition as well, there's a different type of mysticism, but it's similar in the, like, you can't, there's no point sitting around talking about God, you know, it's not going to get anywhere. It's about how you live. Because there's something about being caught up in what you cannot grasp. Uh, that's why Meister Eckhart says, may God rid, rid me of God. Um, the greatest of the contemporary philosophical mystics is probably Jean-Luc Marion, who's a philosopher. If you want to look at him. So I was very influenced by that. And then also I was influenced by uh, another tradition, which is kind of radical theology, which says that God cannot be conceived because God is the name we give to a type of what's called ontological lack. God is the name we give to an antagonism that is within reality itself that cannot be grasped. So it's in the world but can't, can't be caught. And so that's really interestingly kind of atheistic way of thinking about God, which sounds counterintuitive at first. So we have the mystics. God cannot be grasped because of a plentitude, a saturation of something. And then there's this other tradition that says, no, no, no. Actually, the whole point of religion is to experience a type of uh, transcendent gap in reality itself. Now, that sounds weird, but I'm going to get into that later on. This is 101, and I feel we've already gone further than 101, <laughs> sorry. Um, but we'll, we'll get into radical theology later. But it's kind of like saying, whenever Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is this beautiful moment where God experiences the lack in God. And a lot of radical theologians say, well, the truth is there is an unknowability in reality itself. So in physics, it's called you know, superpositioning uh, or wave particle duality. So that's a type of nothingness that is scientifically verifiable, right? It's not mystical or anything like that, so it's not a new age kind of thing. It's, it's literally, there seems to be within reality itself a non-totalizing dimension, right? Uh, in, in evolutionary theory, it's called evolution. Or sorry, biological theory, it's called evolution. Evolution is an antagonism in biological reality that causes the proliferation of biological species, right? So, you know, you can't have evolution without antagonism. Uh, you can get it, you also get it in mathematics with Gödel, who talks about this kind of, interestingly, the um, uncertainty principle in mathematics, where precise mathematical structures uh, end up having to take into consideration a type of lack, 
a type of non-totalizing dimension within math. So there's lots of ways to describe this. And some thinkers go, and theology was one of the early disciplines that was attempting to articulate the fact that the universe is radically open, that we cannot grasp, that actually it's about entering into the discussion. So an old story that I used to tell a lot, you've probably heard me tell, but it's a Jewish story about the young guy goes to the old rabbi to say, teach me the wisdom of God. And, and the rabbi looks at him and says, you're in your 20s, you know, come back in 10 years. And he says, no, 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 I'm ready. I've, I know Aristotelian logic, I know symbolic logic. Teach me the logic of the divine. And as you know, if you've heard the story, the rabbi says, I'll test you. Here's a question. Two guys come down a chimney at the bottom, one has soot in their face, one doesn't. Who washes their face? And the young guy goes, oh, the guy with the soot in his face. And the rabbi says, no, 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 the one without the soot in his face. Because the one with the soot in his face thinks... Um, uh, oh, I must have soot in my face, because he's, he's, he sees you, you've got soot in your face, so he assumes that he's got soot in his face, so he washes his face, right? And they're like, oh, okay, oh yeah, that's smart, okay. And, and try, try me again. The rabbi says, okay, a different question. Two people come down a chimney, one has soot in their face, one doesn't. Who washes their face? And the guy says, oh, the guy without the soot in his face, because he sees the other guy. And the rabbi stops and says, stop trying to be smart. The guy with the soot in his face, because he feels it in his mouth and his eyes, and he washes his face. And then the young guy goes, please, try me one more time. And the rabbi says, okay, one, one more time, last question. Different one this time. Two guys come down a chimney, and at the bottom, one is soot in their face, one doesn't. Who washes their face? The guy goes, oh, is my first answer for different reasons? And the rabbi says, no, they both wash their face. How can you not come down a chimney and not think you've got soot in your face? Right? Now, this Jewish parable is interesting because what it's trying to get at, I think, is the idea that we often think that religion... Uh, and, we portray, and religion is portrayed as the answer. You come into religion to get the answer. But within the Jewish tradition, it's like, no, no, no. If you, if you think you've got the answer, go away. Come back in 10 years. Come back in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s. Come back when you realize that this is a conversation. And right on time, this all dance. That's going to happen at various points during the festival. There'll be music and you dance. <laughs> um, you know, like the, um, that you're actually being invited into a conversation that the first thing you have to give up is certainty that you have the answers. This is a conversation that's been going on for thousands of years before you were born, will be going on for thousands of years after you die, and you're just a little blip of a part of that conversation, and that actually what's important is that you love the conversation, you're passionate about it, you're open to it changing you, not that somehow you get the right answer. So that's this notion of this radical undecidability. And then I was going to say one more thing and then a bit of Q&A. Um, one more thing then is I'm interested not in the theory. I've always been interested in the technology of this idea. That's, that's the key for me. And actually, I started off by setting up a community with some people who are part of this festival called ICON that was to do with helping people experience rupture, doubt, complexity, unknowing, that had a dialectic structure. And a dialectic structure in a nutshell, is the idea that opposites are not opposites, they're interconnected. And that what we do, basically there's two basic things we do naturally when we're in life, right? We either try to often, if, there's, if we're presented with two opposites, we try to go for the positive one. We try to go for the one that looks good. Between peace and conflict, we go for peace, right? Between light and darkness, we go for light. Um, between doubt and knowing, we go for knowing. 
or we try to synthesize them in some sort of uh, higher unity. We try to find out how they're, they're interconnected. Um, with the dialectics, and Hegel kind of invented this uh, in, in many ways, is actually you, you, you choose the worse. <laughs> That's the move. That if you want to get to the light, you choose the darkness. You want to get to confidence, you go into the doubt. You want to, you want to find life, you go into death. And weirdly, this movement, which is counterintuitive to us, naturally, even, even if we intellectually agree with it, it's counterintuitive to our whole way of being, but it's the idea that, that we move into that space, something will happen. An icon was designed to help us confront the doubt, ambiguity, complexity, traumas, difficulties, anxieties of our existence. To not, as I said earlier, not to try to say you have to, you have to find suffering, no, you don't have to find suffering. You, you're already got enough of it. There's already going on. You don't have to find doubt. You don't have to, in fact, if you don't have any doubt, that's even worse, then you're probably suffering from psychosis, which is, you know, that, what is psychosis? Well, it's, it's the tyranny of certainty. You, you meet someone who is suffering from a psychotic break. They are in this terror of certainty. And, it's, and it can be certainty over the weirdest things. I know someone who thinks the FBI talked to them through soul cycle music, right? That's kind of crazy. What the, and they're completely rational. They're compl intelligent. They're thoughtful. It started off when they, um, they were going to a doctor and they thought the doctor was taking their blood and fi found a cure for cancer using their blood and was going to make a fortune. Although even before that, it started with the parents, or sorry, the teachers in her school persecuting her children. It started kind of almost like, almost reasonable, but it was certain that she knew the teachers were persecuting their children. And then she knew the doctor was taking her blood. And it ended with a psychotic break where she was certain that, um, that the FBI and the CIA were communicating with her in covert ways. And what's amazing when you're talking to someone in a psychotic break is there is no room for doubt. Any form of phobia, you know, conspiracy theories. You notice these conspiracy theories are often a form of psychosis. Um, there's no, and every piece of evidence, just counter evidence is just brought in. Dentists are all out to get you. Yeah, but your dentist is really nice. Well, yes, of course, if they're out to get you, they're going to pretend to be nice, right? Every counter piece of evidence gets brought in to, to the conspiracy theory. But for most of us, the doubt and the unknowing is already there but we haven't been able to face it, we haven't been able to mobilize it, we haven't been able to weaponize it for the good. That's the difficulty. So what happens is we start having symptoms that are damaging, bad backs, inability to sleep, arguments, outbreaks of tears for no apparent reason, whatever it is. Some of those can be biological, some of them are uh, eruptions of symptoms. So we created a community where we go, no, you know what, we face that stuff and I believe that in doing that, we're gonna get somewhere better. And actually, weirdly, I believe that that is the heart of a type of uh, faith. That's what we need. We need liturgical traditions that don't protect us from our unknowing, because that's what I think liturgy, sadly, and churches do. They actually, even if you don't believe in the deus ex, the God who fixes everything, what Bonhoeffer called the deus ex machina God, you still sing about him, and you still hear sermons about him, and that uh, you still have, you know, it's still that anthropomorphic, Father God who's going to save us and protect us. We have a liturgy that seems hell-bent on protecting us from going into the place of darkness and despair. Um, and what I wanted to do is create a liturgy that actually encouraged that. 
I'm going to do a whole talk on how we do that later. And there's a few people here who are doing communities that are attempting to do it. So we'll go into the theory of how to do it. But it was that liturgical movement into the darkness, into the, into the, the shadow, um, to, see, to see the light. So that was what we call the transformance art and decentering practices. Because centering practices are great. Centering practices are practices you do to center you. But decentering practices are practices designed to destabilize you. Um, and actually, destabilization is, is partly where the action is. We think about all the major destabilizing factors in our uh, culture, Western culture. Uh, Copernicus was a decentering practice. We're no longer the center of the universe, right? Um, uh, Darwin was a decentering. Uh, experience the we are no longer like something separate from the rest of the animal kingdom we are part of something and uh, Freud was a decentering event the consciousness is not the the be-all and end-all in fact we are in thrall to something unconscious we think we're in control but actually often we find ourselves completely out of control I knew someone I was talking to the other day who's obsessive compulsive incredibly smart incredibly intelligent who writes literally hundreds of notes, hundreds of notes, has to note everything. You go into the house and all you have are notes everywhere. And he doesn't believe in the unconscious, it's interesting. And the thing about that is, of course, because someone who's obsessive, I was talking to Jameson about this uh, last night or night before, someone who's, uncon who's, who's obsessive is trying to avoid the unconscious at all costs, to make everything controllable, everything can be noted, everything can be you know, put in order. So the obsessive who cleans the house can't leave until everything is spotless. In a sense, you're trying to not let anything in that is not ordered and right and there. Um, this kind of this, but there's this uh, you know fear of this of this other dimension. And Icon was trying to through decentering practices to do that. And so one of them, and I won't mention them all, but one of them was, for example, the Last Supper where over a meal, 12 of us would gather and we'd invite someone to come and talk about what they believe and why they believe it. Someone who probably has very different beliefs from the people in the, around the table. And they're put in the seat of Christ. You know, and of course, we, you know what we did with him, you know, crucified him, so like, you're the bringer of truth. And also, you know what we did with him, so be careful. And the idea is that one event, one last supper, just as interesting, but if you do 12 last suppers in a year, where every month, you're meeting somebody who's sitting in the seat of Christ with a very different ethical or religious view from yourself, you start to get decentered. You start to see yourself through their eyes and maybe start to see that your views are the weird ones, right? At first, they're the weird ones. But then you see yourself through their eyes and you go, my goodness, I'm bizarre. I'm weird, right? That's the, that's the, te that's the truly terrifying thing about the other, by the way, is um, at first, if I meet you and you've got weird beliefs and practices, you're bizarre, you're weird, right? You're the monster, really, right? Which is true. Um, and I want to, so I've got three options, maybe four, right? First option is convert you, make you into me, to think like me and to act like me, right? So consumption, Nietzsche calls it. I consume you, in other words, you become part of my biological system. So my community consumes you so that you become part of the biological system of the community. If I can't do that, then I want to vomit you out. So if you think of a child putting something in her mouth, if, you, if, if, she, if she can't swallow it, she'll spit it out. So I can't integrate you into my community, so I want to vomit you out, I want to get rid of you. Right? The third is the most sneaky. 
And the third is the idea, well, you know what? Beneath all of our differences, we're pretty much the same, right? Interfaith dialogue and tradition, where we sit down together, you know, we're like, yes, we have streams that are different, but beneath those streams, there is an ocean that we share in common. So let's find that deeper commonality. Now, the problem with all of these is in all of these, I am right. And the first two, I'm right and you're wrong. And the third, hey, we're both right. Let's have tea and biscuits, right? What's really scary is when you encounter the other and you think they're monstrous and weird, then you see yourself through their eyes and you go, I'm monstrous and weird. My views of how to raise kids and how society should run and what religion is or anything, those are weird. I'm bizarre. I'm a stranger to myself. You're not the stranger. I'm the stranger. I've just, I've just hung around with myself enough that I don't think I'm a stranger, you know? So you help me encounter the strangeness of me, and I'm terrified of that. I don't want to encounter the stranger that I am. And so often, I don't want the other around me, not because I'm scared of their otherness, but because I'm scared of my own otherness. I'm scared of my own wrongness. That's what I think real interfaith dialogue is, by the way. It's great, is where you come into contact with each other you need the other person's eyes in order to see yourself. You see how bizarre you are, and then you're challenged to try to be less toxic, maybe in your life. So we had a thing called the Evangelism Project. It was another decentering practice, and it was where we went to communities to be evangelized. So we would go to the Jewish community, we'd go to the Islamic society, we'd go to the humanist society, and the idea was we'd go, evangelize us. Now, they would talk about what they believed, we would learn something, but that wasn't the evangelism. And we're very clear, right? it's like, that's not the evangelism. It's very unlikely you're going to convert to something after one meeting. And if you do, there's probably something seriously wrong with you, whatever it is you're converting to. You know people who convert to things all the time, they're always changing the latest band, the latest clothes, the latest fashion. Uh, what we need, by the way, is, is conversion is conversion from the need to convert. And that's very, very difficult to do. You know, we're, we're always you know, moving from one fashion to another, but we're still obsessed with the same desire structure. It's just we're like, we're like slotting in something different into the desire structure. Like, do you know, are you, are you susceptible yourself to always thinking you find the right answer? Maybe this is now, you go here at wake, you go, oh, this must be the right answer. Sorry, idiot. <laughs> you know, um, I, 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 always, I did a talk once where I talked about the last guru. And I said, like, I want to be... I don't want to be a guru. Well, I probably do secretly want to be a guru. That's why I wear this James Bond bad guy type jacket. I really like this. I bought this recently. I've got like, I look like a James Bond bad guy. That's what I want. That's good. Just good. Um, but, uh, but I want to be the last guru. In other words, I think that the idea is that we all need authority figures. There's people who are in our lives for a time we learn from. And for a time, they help us see ourselves. And the, the, the better the authority figure, the more dumb they are, right? That's it. You want to look for someone who just pretends symbolically to be something. You don't need a good father. You need just a father who's quiet enough that you think they're good. Um, it's like a therapist. Therapists can be shit. They just sit there quietly. They could be thinking about their breakfast, their lunch. They could be thinking about it. But symbolically, they help you see yourself. Symbolically. And you think it's called subject supposed to know. You think they've got some great insight into you. No, they're not thinking about you at all necessarily, right? But, but you think that, and that, and that weird projection helps you. So, but what, what, I, what I hate is when the authority figure tries to pretend that they actually are the authority figure, right? When they try to pretend that they actually do have the wisdom, the insight, they actually do have something to say. The whole point of an authority figure, I think, at the end is to reveal to you that they're not an authority figure. The last rule, the last act of the priest is to create a priesthood of all believers, which is to say, well, 
you did, you did the work, like the therapist. At the end, you're thanking me. I did nothing. I just sat, sat quietly and took your money. You did the work. And, uh, and the last act is you breaking up with me and going and leading your own life. And I'm glad I was there, but I was mute. And, and, and you paid me to be mute. So I do want you to come. You know, maybe you're here because you think this is going to give you the answer. That's great, because I've got you in the room. And then very gradually you realize, oh, this is as rubbish as everything else. But not only that, you might go away thinking, and there's not another thing that I can get. In fact, now what I have to do is learn to live with this anxiety that I have and actually find a way to affirm it and to make it into something good. Very hard to do, but that's it. That's the last guru. The guru who says, I'm not a guru, and the authority figure who basically turns out to be absolutely rubbish. And I can guarantee you that I'm absolutely rubbish. <laughs> so that was what Icon tried to do. Here's the trick. Is The trick is we project onto the liturgical structure the notion that that is the truth. We don't do it consciously, but that becomes the embodiment of the truth, the divine God, whatever. And if that structure then acts up to that and gives you that back, nothing changes. But if the structure begins to doubt itself, you project onto the structure unconsciously that that is the answer. And then that structure embraces doubt, complexity, ambiguity, brokenness, fragmented reality. Then that changes you in the inside. And I uh, say, well, I'll talk about that structure more, but, but that's the point of the authority figure, is in a sense the music that you listen to, the preaching that you hear, begins to enact this death of the idols. Let me stop there. My goodness, because I'm what time have I got to? I've not looked at a program yet. Lunch is one. Is, that, is it 11.30? That's not right. Oh, yes, is that what? We, something's wrong with this, with this program. There's always something goes wrong. Okay, so well, we've got plenty. Well, we'll break before then. And so is it just me? Does it say me from 10.30 to 1? I can keep going. Are you going to stop now? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, oh. <laughs> well, you know what I'll do? Oh, yeah, well, this is kind of then two, two sessions rolled into one. What we'll do is we'll take a little 15-minute break at some point and then, you know, you know get a coffee that uh, established or whatever here, and then we'll come back for some more. So uh, I've done from 10.30 to, I'll just talk, a yeah, it's 11.30 now, isn't it? So if we break now for a little bit and come back and then do a Q&A, there you go, let's take a break, have a coffee, we'll come back in 15, 20 minutes. This is all organized. This is, by the way, this is an enactment of exactly what I was saying, right? <laughs> This is, I, the, everything is a learning experience, okay? Everything that looks like it's not organized was very, very precisely organized. So the point was, at this point, I was going to pretend. You did very well. We acted this all out. And so I enact that I am an idiot. And then it breaks the fantasy. There you go. So have a break, have a coffee, come back. Just like, just 15, 20 minutes, and then we'll get into some Q&A for you. Sir, what's your name, by the way? Robert. Thanks, Robert. Um, okay, so just to, to recap for a second, is I kind of looked at this initial experience, this event that happened within a very conservative fundamentalist environment, but that I felt actually captured something deeply true that I've subsequently discovered or 
uh, find in, in other philosophical traditions and in psychoanalysis talks about this. So that fundamental event that I then have spent my time reflecting on, uh, I talked about how the mystics gave me an, an initial way of articulating this, where the mystics talk about going into the darkness to find the light, going into the uncertainty to find a, uh, uh, a confidence. And the mystics were really very comfortable with that phrase that Todd McGowan used yesterday of moving from the striving, the struggle for fulfillment to a fulfillment within struggle. And that was very, very key to the, to the mystical tradition. And then I found another discourse that was also very compelling to me that cashed out in much the same way. I mentioned that earlier in the, in the welcome, this notion that some people thought wake or icon was crypto-atheist, some thought it was crypto-theist, but actually both it was trying to draw us into a certain kind of uh, comfort in not knowing, because what is anxiety? I mean, in one, anxiety is a complicated thing, obviously, but in a basic way, anxiety is the fear of nothingness itself. Anxiety, so fear is fear of something. When you fear, you fear a thing, you know, whether it's a lion or a tiger or whatever. Anxiety is this kind of fear of nothingness itself. It is the encounter with uh, a type of lack that, that causes this experience and this feeling, which means anxiety is deeply true. Uh, Lacan once said that all emotions can lie except anxiety. Anxiety is the only emotion that's true. In, in the sense that, weirdly, people think that, oh, my emotions are more true than my intellectual life. And not really. You can love someone when you think you hate them. And you can be sad when you think you're happy. You can be happy when you think you're sad. You know, we actually can be very not in tune with our own emotional life. But anxiety touches something very core uh, about reality, a type of lack. Um, but it's, it's a very painful thing. Uh, and something I want to... There's actually a question that's already been offered, so I'm going to come to that in a second. But, so I, but I looked at this notion of the unknowing, and I talked about then developing a type of liturgical structure that helped us to enter into that. And one of the sayings in my... I think it was my first book, um, and definitely my website anyway, it said, to, to believe is human, to doubt divine. And the idea there was that actually to believe is easy. Belief is simple. We all have lots of beliefs that, that protect us. Uh, often we don't believe our beliefs, of course, right? I've talked about that a lot. You know, we don't believe in ghosts, but at night, if we hear something downstairs, we put our duvet cover over our heads like we're in Harry Potter and it's going to protect us from some sort of criminal, right? That is a superstition. We don't believe in it, but we actually do. We enact it. We enact lots of things that we, we, we don't think we believe. So beliefs can give us a sense of confidence, a sense of security in the world. Uh, often that's actually what they're for. Again, you're not supposed to actually believe them. Within conservative churches, for example, it's not about belief. It's about saying that you believe. Very, very different things. Uh, there's a decentering practice called the Omega Course that I would run. And it was like the Alpha course, but, uh, but, but instead of entering Christianity, it was exiting Christianity in 12 weeks, so it's called the Omega course, right? So if you know the Alpha course, it's a very big uh, thing within uh, Anglicanism, but evangelical Anglicanism, and now beyond. And it's basically 12, I think it's 12 weeks, you, someone will be able to correct me if I'm wrong, um, but when including a weekend, and you, you discuss 
various religious themes. Uh, you maybe talk about the Bible or existence of God, but at the end, then you have a video or someone presents a case that gives you the right answer, right? So you can have a debate and discussion, but then they tell you the answer kind of at the end. So the Amiga course is similar, but it doesn't give you the answer at the end. What we do is we actually follow some of the same questions and we talk about, well, you know, what is, you know, talk about, say, um, the resurrection. But we look at it in terms of a really good conservative, someone like N.T. Wright, maybe look at what he thinks. Then we take somebody who, who's really good, you know, from a liberal theological tradition, look at what they think, and then someone maybe from the radical, non-confessional tradition, what they think. And then we talk about our own experience, or how our beliefs have changed or not, and, uh, and then that's it. And it's all about saying, well, it's the conversation that's important, that we're passionate about this. Just like in an art gallery, you look at a piece of art, it would be silly to think that what's important is you get the correct interpretation of the artwork. Uh, what's important is that you love the art, that you're transformed by it, that you interact with it. Often, like myself in my past, it was like, no, I have to get the right interpretation of the art. When an artwork, by definition, transcends singular interpretation, that's why you have to go back repeatedly. It's, it doesn't lack meaning. A great piece of art is saturated with meaning. It has a multiplicity of meaning. Um, hence, you go back and you look at it again and again and again. So if someone comes along and says, I know, even if the artist comes along and says, I know what this means, you reject them. Which again is that Jewish parable about the two rabbis arguing about a passage in the Torah. And after 20 years of this, God comes down from heaven because he's got the patience of a saint, but God's even pissed off and says, you've argued about this passage in the Torah for 20 years, I'll tell you what it means. And in a rare moment of unity, the two rabbis turn to God and say, clear off back to heaven, let us argue about it, right? In none of your business. And I love this because in one sense, that's what people are often looking for. They're looking for the right interpretation. But within, within this rabbinical tradition, it's like, no, what's important is you argue it, you fight it. And actually, there is no singular interpretation. Even God, have said, God said there's a singular interpretation. God's wrong, right? So this saturation of meaning. Uh, why was I saying that? Anybody help me? What was my point? Oh, thank you very much. Well done. You get the star. Um, so, <laughs> so this is a lead up to say there was, there was a lady who was there in the Omega course and she'd just gone through cancer treatment. And uh, you know, she was uh, she's probably in her late 50s, had been in a Christian tradition all her life. She was an elder in the church. Uh, she was part of the Fair Trade Cafe that they had as part of the community. And part of the conversation, somebody said, well, you know, I think the whole resurrection of Christ is a metaphor. You know, I think it's symbolic. I don't think it's literal. And then somebody else said, oh, you know, funnily enough, I, I'm drawn by this notion that it was literal, and they talk about that. And then someone else said, you know what, truth is, I've never actually thought about it. I've said it, and I, but I've never, I've never actually thought about what I believe. But anyway, that lady, she said, listen, I don't believe, I don't think I believe in a literal resurrection. I believe that there's, it's a metaphor, and it's an important one, it's really transformed my life. But then afterwards, she seemed very tense and upset. And I asked her, I said, well, you know, what's up? And she said, well, if I said that in my church, they'd probably take me off the eldership. I think, you know, I wouldn't be kicked out of the church or anything, but I'd be taken off the eldership. I'd, I wouldn't be able to, you know, be on the worship team or whatever. Um, I'd still be able to be in the fair trade coffee shop because that's not important, <laughs> but, but playing a guitar. Uh, but I said, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't say that. And so I asked the question, I said, well, do you think other people in the eldership have asked similar questions or have similar doubts? 
And she was like, well, I guess they do. I know them. They're smart people. I'm sure maybe some of them think the same. And I'm going, oh, so the issue is not that you believe that. The issue is that you can't say it, right? So obviously she's going, like, within the eldership team, probably lots of people think that. Go like, okay, so then what you're uncovering is weirdly that the community is full of these doubts and these questions, and the point is just you don't share them. Keep them beneath the surface. Don't, don't let them be seen. And that gives you a glimpse into how beliefs often function. They're not really designed to uh, change you in any way or anything like that, but they're designed to kind of give you a coherent space, a coherent kind of tribal group who's in and who's out. And you can have lots of doubts and unknowing, just don't show them. In fact, what's even more interesting within conservative communities is you always get a few people who really do believe, and they're a nightmare. They'll never get to the top, right? You know, like I remember in my community, there, was, there were a few people who were just so true believers, and they're in, like nobody wants them in the leadership. They'll just want to like pray all day and uh, do all these crazy things and give all the money away because obviously God will give you it back and do all mad stuff. So what you do is you pat them on the head, but keep them at a distance. <laughs> um, I like those people. I was kind of one of them. And I think it's like once you go all the way, you realize it doesn't work. If you don't go all the way, you've always got a fantasy that it would work if you went all the way. You know, like if I, you know, if I, was, if I was in that eldership room, I got to the top, then we'd be having cappuccinos with Christ every day, right? You know, the angels are in there. But when you get into the, the room, you realize it doesn't hold. There's nothing really there. But by that stage, you've got a job. You've got money coming in, so you have to perpetuate the uh, illusion. Um, so what I said, oh, yeah, so belief often functions, it's not about really believing it. There's a great story about Stalin on this. Um, uh, oh no, I'll share that in a couple of days. Yeah, my Stalin joke. Um, so belief functions, not necessarily to be believed, but to create the stability. And um, I'm trying to think why I was even saying that now. Oh yeah, I'm getting old, oh, go ahead. Oh no, you were gonna say where I was? No, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is because this is what you do, it's great. I love Jay's hair, like, where am I? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think this is what I was going to say: is that 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 my wager in my first book was that I don't have to get the evangelical church to doubt. There, the doubt is already there. It's already full. You know, it's already existing. So all I have to do is call it out. That's the radical move. Often is what is the unspoken thing which everybody is there but nobody's saying, and just say it, speak it, bring it to the surface. And that's what How Not to Speak of God was. I, f I was trying to find a way to um, strategically uh, infiltrate the evangelical community with doubt. Not saying that you should doubt, but that it's already there. And let's bring it to the surface with the belief that when you name it, it changes. Just like if you've got a family where there's an affair happening and everybody knows it, but nobody says it. And everything just goes on as normal. But the symptoms are there, problems with the kids in school and various overworking and various symptoms tell the truth. Everybody knows what's happening, but nobody says it. What one has to do, and it's very difficult to do, but maybe through mediation, is bring the truth to the surface in a very careful way. And when the truth comes to the surface, one of two things happens. Either you break up or you find a new way to do your relationship. Funnily enough, here, just as a matter of, as an aside, in relationships, we often think you've got a choice between breaking up with someone or staying with them. Now, often, if you break up with someone, but you don't kind of change who you are, 
you actually, you break up with that particular person, but you'll continue to have the same type of relationship with the next person and the next person. So what you can actually do, which is more radical, is you can break up with the same person and then go out with them again. So I say, so either like either you break up with one person and you go out with the next and then you repeat the same cycle and you break up with them, you go out with them, whatever. Or you um, fundamentally change how you relate to the person you're with. Right? So that's what happens when you bring that truth to the surface. You've got two choices. Well, sometimes it's right. We're, we're just go our separate ways. This is not going to work. And that's painful. There are no happy endings. You know, all endings are sad uh, in some way. Uh, or you go, you know, we are going to break up and then we're going to try and go out again differently. We're going to change how we, we go out. But nothing can stay the same. Um, an example I've used before, you might know it as a good friend of mine who said that who comes to wake a lot. She's not here this year. But she said that when her parents come home, she hides all the alcohol in her house because her parents are teetotalers, very religious. They don't like alcohol in the house. And then she said that it was a disaster one day because one time they came round and there were some wine bottles uh, maybe in the trash and it created, created this conflict. And I said, all oh, right, so they didn't know that you drank? They thought, oh, no, they did. They were the ones who told me that I should hide the alcohol, right? So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So... The parents then like, you've got to get rid of the alcohol. We all know that you're drinking, but let's pretend that it's not there. And I asked her why, and she said, well, to avoid a crisis. Now, she knew the answer herself, because it was going like, oh, yeah, well, you're not avoiding a crisis. The crisis is already there. It's just being covered over, right? You're not, you're not avoiding a crisis. You're avoiding confronting the crisis that already exists. Uh, and, and then what happens, and what happened with her is, okay, then now the family has a choice because they're confronted with the truth that they all know, either they go, listen, you know what, we're so separate that it's not going to work, and that happens, and sometimes you have to break with your family for a while, sometimes for more than a while, or you find a new way to relate, but nothing can stay the same. Um, I used to say this, I was talking to this Mexican guy I know, um, who was saying that he, he's not religious at all, but his family are deeply religious, and every time they come to, to the U.S., he goes to church with them. And again, I asked the naive question. It's like, oh, do they not know that you've got no interest in this? Again, they're like, oh, yeah, no, they completely know. They've got Facebook and stuff, you know? So they all know, but they don't. Or if, if you go to your family with your partner and you sleep in separate rooms, like, so what, they think you're sleeping in separate rooms when you're in your own house? Like, no, but we have to pretend to avoid a crisis. The crisis is already there, and all you have to do is name it. But naming it's very difficult, and you have to name it in the right way. There is an art to this. People who just name these things and then walk away are throwing explosives into things they do not know how to handle. It's a very difficult problem. That's why you have to do mediation. That's why people go to counselors. It's not because they don't know something. You don't go to counselors because you think, oh, they're going to reveal something we don't know. No, they're just going to create a space where, the, where you can come to know what you already know. You can, what, what, what is revealed is not something that was secret, but what is revealed is something that is repressed. And that's very, very different. You know, knowledge that you don't know is rarely offensive. If you have a minister... And the minister says that they're full of doubt, they don't believe in God or whatever, they're not sure. Um, some people might go, I'm surprised to hear that. I didn't know that. But if someone gets angry and shouts and screams and thinks this is terrible, that's more of an idea that, oh, they knew it, they just didn't want to know that they knew it. That it's okay the minister has full of doubts. We all know they do, you know. But as long as nobody says it, then we can continue business as usual. 
just like in these evangelical churches that hire in their worship teams, right? We all know that it is hard guns, but we pretend that they're doing it for real and uh, it keeps the whole thing running. So that, that, sorry, that was an overview from the last session is that that experience of radical subtraction, the mystics, the materialist theological traditions giving different ways of articulating that, interested in the liturgical structure that brings that to the surface, that enacts that, that's the next reformation for me, but brings that to the surface with the idea that there's something going to arise in the aftermath of it. That going deeper into that will actually create um, a new form of religious community that is in fidelity with the past, but also different. Um, now, there was a question that came up, and so I'll start with the question that came up. I promise you I'm not just making this up because I want to talk about it. Um, and then uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes. One of the questions that came up is, okay, well, you, well here's a way of articulating it. You can go into the darkness and fall in love with the darkness, and, it, you can, and that despair can lead to utter... Uh, you know, ultimately suicide, right? How do you, this idea of entering into the darkness, how do you enter into that um, in a way that is productive and good and is not going to consume you and destroy you? And first of all, one thing is that, say, we can't give you, and I said this at the beginning, is we can't really help you too much in going into that dark space because that's a lot of work that's going to require more than five days. Uh, but it can... Um, help uh, inspire and encourage your courage to draw out your courage that if you do that in a good environment it will be productive in, in various uh, in your personal life in the political world etc but how it looks in theory is, is this is a lot of depression is not the results of you giving up some idol of certainty and satisfaction most depression isn't that. Most depression is not that you have given up the idea that the world is meaningful, that you've lost the idea that there is something that will satisfy you. Most depression is that you think you haven't got that, that it exists, but you don't have it. That woman or that man, if you could only be with them, then it would be amazing. If I only had that money, if only I worked harder, prayed harder, whatever it is that you've resigned yourself to not having what's called the lost object. The lost object is, is a technical name for this object that actually doesn't exist. <laughs> but, we, but it only exists as lost. It only exists as something that we think exists. And I'll give you an example of a friend who, and this happens all the time, it's happened to me actually, uh, where you break up with somebody and you go like, the relationship wasn't good. It wasn't great. In fact, you know it wasn't good. I've had that where I was in a relationship and it just wasn't good. And I was trying to get out of it for years. And, but as soon as I got out of it, I started to fantasize that that thing was incredible and I had to get it back. So the moment that this mediocre thing is taken away from me, the mediocre thing starts to take on a sacred dimension and becomes incredible. Now, there's two ways that this happens, broadly speaking. That you can call one um, fear of castration and the other castration in, in psychoanalytic terms. One is where something, when it's being taken away from you, starts to become magical. So you've got a kid with a toy. 
you start to take away the toy. Now, if they played with the toy, they get bored with it in five minutes, but the process of taking the toy away from them starts to make them think that I need that toy or I'll die. That's the one toy that I want. Suddenly that toy is different from every other toy. It becomes metaphysical. It, it has a metaphysical or theological dimension. It becomes magical. So that is the, the, the drawing away. And then the other thing is not something that's drawn away, but something that you've never had. You look out at others and you see that they've got something and you fantasize that they've got the thing that if only you have, then it would be wonderful. And there's two types of that, jealousy and envy. Jealousy is where you want what the other person has and their desire for it makes you want it. So if you know René Girard's work, he talks a lot about this, that, that I start to desire something because you desire it. Not because it's inherently desirable. A lot of adverts work like this. You see people in the advert that you're attractive and cool, desiring an object. And you, what you really desire is their desire. You, you latch onto their desire for that car, and then you start wanting that car. And this creates all sorts of conflicts because we start to fight with each other. So that's jealousy, where you want what the other person has. You start to think that if you had that, everything would be wonderful. And then envy is slightly different. It is where you don't desire what the other person has. You desire the type of relationship they have with the thing that they have. So you may not want the guy or the girl who you, the person's with, but you want the type of relationship they have. So you're, you're not desiring their act, the actual object of the other, but you're desiring what you think they've got, their, their very being, their very essence. Those are all caught up with not going into nihilism, but not going into nihilism enough. <laughs> like, that actually the way, and Nietzsche thought, the way, the way through nihilism is into it is that weirdly, the worst type of depression is a depression that's connected with the lost object. The worst kind of horror is that there's something dangling just beyond your reach that's saying, if only you could have it. And what's incredible is this is so powerful that you can literally remind yourself, we were in a terrible relationship. It was rubbish. We were bored. We didn't like each other. It was like, it was terrible, right? You actually physically know it. And then you're going, but I will kill everybody to get it back, right? Because somehow it's become the sacred object, even though intellectually you know it's not. That's how powerful this drive is that, that is connected. And I, I want to talk about this more later, but there's a beautiful saying by René Girard who says that, imagine a guy who's told that there is treasure in a rocky field. So you're in a rocky field, and under one of the rocks there is treasure. Well, at first you'll be lifting the rocks to try to find the treasure. And then René Girard says, eventually, the guy will look for a rock so heavy that he can't lift it. And it's very insightful. Because the idea is this, that there's one thing more difficult to grasp for us than the idea that we cannot find a thing that will make us happy. And it's that the thing that will make us happy doesn't exist. That's more traumatic to us. So there's the trauma of not getting you know, the money or not getting the fame or not getting whatever. That's traumatic. But weirdly, what's even more terrifying for us is the idea that perhaps there is nothing that will do that. 
And so what we will end up doing is finding a rock <laughs> that we cannot lift, which allows us to retain the fantasy that beneath the rock there is the treasure. This is, I think, the, 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 and I, the core of, of the parotheological conversion. And, you know, you'll have a lot of questions about this because how do I justify this theologically, which I can do, I promise, uh, is that is actually the experience of the ripping of the curtain and realizing that the sacred is not it's some object there that will fix everything. Um, Okay, one more thing, and then I promise I'll allow you to ask questions. I don't want you to ask questions because then I'm open to contingency. I'm like the obsessive with all the notes. I keep promising that I will allow novelty and contingency in this room. I will allow the possibility that you'll throw out a question that will throw things up in the air, but you'll notice that it will be constantly deferred. Constantly deferred. What's that? Exactly, exactly. This is another layer of the defense mechanism against the horror of your individuality and your you know, singularity. It terrifies me. Um, so what was it I was going to say? No, oh, I want to have coffee. That's the one. Um, what was I talking about? Oh, not, yeah, but not asking questions exactly. Yeah. Um, I wanted to say something deeply profound. Okay, I'm going to allow you to ask questions. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the moment of the experience. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This is important. This is important. <laughs> the, the Oedipus complex. You probably heard me talking about it. But this is the 101, so I'm repeating myself. That's the point of the 101, right? That's why I told everybody else to get on the bus. I'm telling all the jokes that they've heard a hundred times, but all of you have heard of them as well. But the Oedipus complex, in a nutshell, is a kid wants to sleep with his mum, father gets in the way, completely normal, uh, kills the father, sleeps with his mother, thinks it's going to be a blessing, but it's a disaster, it's a curse, right? That's the Oedipus complex in a nutshell. Kid sleeps with his mum, doesn't know it's his mum, but wants to sleep with his mum, and he it thinks it's going to be wonderful, but it's not. So what does it mean? Well, uh, the most basic way, and I'm so glad Jameson's not here, it's good, he's a, one of the world, real world-class psychoanalysts who would... Uh, probably turning her grave when she's alive at what I'm going to say. But I think one way of describing this is the mother is a symbol of a return to the womb. The mother is a symbol of the return to wholeness, the loss of the loss, the, the loss of the lack that comes with subjectivity, that beautiful time before we're hurtled into the world and we discover the horror of everything, right? The, the, what, what Tillich called ontic shock. I love that term, ontic shock. If I, had a, if I was a 17-year-old with a heavy metal band, it would be called ontic shock, right? which is the shock of being that, that ruptures us. So the mother is the symbol of getting back to some sort of mystical oneness. The father is a symbol of what gets in the way of you getting that, right? And what the story is about is the kid who's us, breaks through the prohibition, gets the thing that will bring wholeness, completeness, and oneness to us, but it's not a blessing, it's a disaster. It's an absolute curse. This is the Freudian answer to all those Instagram posts that say, you can do it, fulfill your dreams. The Freudian response is, fulfill your dreams so that you can experience the abject horror of them. So that you can experience how impotent and ridiculous and powerless your dreams are. Fulfill your dreams so that you can realize that your dreams do not fulfill you. Right? That's why Schopenhauer said that basically humans oscillate between depression and melancholy. 
You know, depression, the unhappiness that comes from not getting what you want, and melancholy, the unhappiness of getting what you want, right? So thank you very much. Um, it's, you know, it's like that, it's, we're caught between a rock and a hard place. Now, the reason why I tell you that is I think the Jewish tradition starts with an Oedipal story, right? Adam and Eve is such a profound story. Uh, it has a fruit tree, right, just a fruit tree. It has a prohibition stopping you from getting the fruit tree. And on the other side, you have Adam and Eve, right? And if you notice in the story, the fruit tree becomes magical in its prohibition. When it's not allowed, it suddenly is like, oh, we want to eat of that tree. What makes it magical? The prohibition, just like saying to the kids, you can't play with that toy. Like you said with Milo, you can't, there's one toy you can't play with, which is the ghost rider, is it? Yeah, so that'll be the one toy he wants to play with. That will become a sacred object for him. So you should pick another toy that you do want him to play with. You know, so, and then he feels he can break the prohibition. So if Milo breaks the prohibition and plays with it, it's going to be horrific because it's, like, it's just like everything else, but it's magical and not being had. So there's this prohibition. Adam and Eve break through the prohibition, just like in the Oedipal story. They think it's going to be a blessing, but it's a curse. It's a disaster, right? So it has the same Oedipal story. Structure. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. You're unhappy because you don't have this fruit. And by the way, you have a serpent. What is the serpent doing? Well, the serpent says, if you eat of the fruits, you will be whole. You will be like God. And traditionally, God lacks the lack, right? God is the whole and complete. So the serpent is saying, eat the fruit, you will be whole and complete. You will know all, right? Knowledge of good and evil, etc. That in psychoanalysis is, is basically the superego. The superego is the voice that tells you that if you do X, Y, or Z, you'll be great. Nicer to your mum, have more friends, get out more, you know, fear of missing out, whatever it is. It's the superego is always telling you that you have to do something in order to be whole, in order to be complete. And we think we have to obey the superego. No, we have to exorcise the superego. We have to be freed from the superego. In the same way in theology, we think we have to obey the serpent. No, we have to exorcise a serpent. And what is, the, what is that? The technology of theology is grace. Because grace says you don't have to do anything. Right? So it's a, it's a, it breaks you free from that. But you have this, this eatable structure. And in my work, it's I go like, well, the, the temple of Jerusalem is the same setup as the Garden of Eden. You have the court of Gentiles, you have the curtain, you have the Holy of Holies. Holy of Holies is where the divine is. Then, then in, the, in the cry of Christ and the cross, the the curtain rips, you see inside, there's nothing there, right? So this is an experience of the, the, the sacred object doesn't exist. But the Christianity starts off with this eatable thing. And um, I think that theology is how to break us free from it. And the breaking free from it, say depression is largely, we're still too tied to this lost object. And actually happiness lies in realizing we're all lack. And that's part of existence. And actually, we can affirm that there's something good in it. Now, I'm already probably getting into what I want to talk about you later in the week. So any other, this is your chance. Go for it now. Thank you. Please do. So one is, how Mm. So, uh, I'll 
I'll go with the second one first because I find that easier to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll maybe come back to it as well because sometimes it takes a few minutes and I'll go, oh, I know what to say to that. <laughs> um, but yes, it, it is important how not to name. Uh, it, it's, it's not just, there's an ignorance that comes from a lack of reading, a lack of thinking, and there's an ignorance that comes from deep study and deep reflection, and they're very different. Um, and this, this kind of unknowing that I'm talking about, you find, as I say, in different fields, and I mentioned it in physics, I mentioned it in mathematics, and there's in aesthetics, there's something, something similar in ethics. Um, and these different disciplines are finding very precise ways of talking about some sort of antagonism or lack uh, in reality. And in psychoanalysis, you could call it the unconscious is a name for this lack. Uh, it's a very precise way of speaking. So in a way, in, in good Freudian psychoanalysis, the unconscious does not exist. The unconscious isn't something. The unconscious is the name we give to the antagonism in consciousness, right? It's not something that you've got one thing and another thing, and what people call the subconscious, which is like consciousness and then subconscious. The unconsciousness is like a slash that is within consciousness. It's what stops us from being at one with ourselves, and we kind of fight with ourselves, right? Um, and so that is a way of trying to name in a very precise way uh, and talk about a type of nothingness or a rupture within reality. In theology, that's what the great mystics are doing, that's what radical theology is doing, is finding very good language, very deep language, to try to, I would almost say, create an architectural structure around the nothingness, which actually creates nothingness. When you create a building, you kind of mold the lack that's within it. So you could, somebody could create a small shack and someone else creates a cathedral. Neither captures the lack, but one is more beautiful and more inspiring than the other. So I'm worried, your question, your question was, yeah. Okay, so come back to me. Oh, oh, that, oh, sorry, yes, ah, sorry, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And this is where the A-team are important, right? Because the A-team only show up when they're invited, right? The A-team don't turn up until there's a problem and a community needs them. And then they show up and then they disappear, right? So that's and, and then once they disappear, you know, they're, they're needed for a time. And it seems like this is what happens in therapy. It's like a, it's, the therapist doesn't come to your door with a tract and saying, right, you guys need to sort it out, right? <laughs> they, they wait till you come to them because there is a certain way in which until someone's ready and willing, it's not going to happen. In my line of work, basically people come to me I don't even know how they find out. Maybe they've read a book or they've listened to a podcast, but they come to something like this. It's like, I'm not out there going door to door trying to say, right, I want to draw out your doubt, antagonisms, whatever. But I want to let people know that, that I'm there if they want to. So, and there, but there's an implicit invite. So in therapy, it's the same thing. You go to an analyst. There's kind of two things going on. One is you go to an analyst because you think they're going to fix you. And 
that's not what's going to happen, but it's a good fantasy to have, because if you didn't have that fantasy, you'd never go, right? So you think maybe they'll bring that person back. Maybe they'll, and here's the thing that we all do, or many of us do, is they'll tell us that I'm right, that the, that the other person's an idiot, and that I'm okay, right? You know, and kind of, you want your therapist to take your side. Take your side, say you're fine, bulk you up, maybe even give you some practical advice, how to go out there and meet a new person or whatever, right? And some counseling does that, but proper psychoanalysis doesn't do that. But it allows you to have that fantasy because it gets you in the room. If you were, if the analyst was advertising, you know what? You're probably at least half responsible for what happened, if not more. You're a bit of an Egypt, and I'm not going to fix your life. You're just going to have to come to terms with the, with the darkness, right? You're not going to pay your money for that. It sounds horrific. You'll go on a holiday, do some retail therapy, right? So. You go in with the fantasy, and then very gradually, the analyst helps you divest, divest you of that fantasy, helps you traverse that fantasy, get beyond it to something more, to, to something where you face the darkness. An uh, analogy I've used before is but where monsters are like in a trap door, and you go to the therapist and say, these monsters are threatening to grab me. Can you help me close the door? And the therapist, what do they do? They push you in. They go like, that's where you have to go. Um, but there's, a, there's also, weirdly, even though that's why you might go to the therapy, you're also entering into a contract where you're saying, but I will trust you to help heal me in ways that I may not understand. In the same way, within a church environment, so two things. One is people think God is the thing that's going to fix them, make them whole and complete. But two is they're going there because they're giving a certain level of trust to the liturgical structure to help them and deepen them. And I think the liturgical structure has to, one, uh, adopt that fantasy, allow that fantasy to be projected, and then to very gradually invite the person into that dark space. That's the art. That's where I mean is you don't go up to people who don't ask for it. You don't, you know, uh, you don't, you, with a kid with a security blanket, you don't just take it away and throw it in the trash. You put it in the washing machine. You give them it back. You know, you do whatever things parents do <laughs> to get them off transitional objects. That's the art, and uh, that's, that's what, that's what parotheology, that's what the um, transformance art is. It is the subtle art of gradually experiencing the death of God in the liturgical structure, um, uh, but, but, but believing that actually the, that they've entered into a contract with you of sorts, that, that they, while they attend, they, they, they want you to try to do something useful. Do you want to come? Is that is that give you the slight frame on it? And then, oh, and then the, your question was about kind of in a sense the certainty of uncertainty. How can you? Yeah, this this is this is interesting because this gets us to the heart of something. Is I started with saying that we should we should embrace a certain doubt about whatever we believe. Like it's good to have a certain doubt about your religious belief, for example. And then I moved to the point where I'm going. No, no, no. It's not that you doubt your religious position. It's that your religious position is a doubt and unknowing. That it's not, it's not that you doubt your Christianity, it's that Christianity is what Tillich would call a broken mythology. It actually, so it's so weirdly you become certain of doubt. <laughs> and that, that is actually a big sticking point between two philosophers I really like, uh, John Caputo on one side and uh, Slavio Šizek on the other, is Caputo would more broadly say, let's have a certain hermeneutical humility or epistemological humility about what we believe. 
and Shizek with Moore saying, no, 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 um, we can, there is, there is an, what, he, what he calls an ontological lack. There is an antagonism at the heart of reality, and we can know it. We can be, as, as, as you know, we can be pretty sure of it because we live within it, because it's, it's evidence in biology, it's evidence in physics. It's actually, it's actually an insight that, that we have a, a certain confidence in. And I, you know, I am more broadly on that side, but I, I like them both. I love John Caputo. I mean, he's great. So, um, but I'm gonna leave it there just to see any more questions, comments. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, I'm very, thankfully, very shielded. I don't think I'm big enough for people to, most people to take much of an interest in me. And actually, more and more, I think I'm not really known much in the church. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I am. I don't know. Um, however, I have, what I've seen in groups is sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes people will get very defensive. I've had there was a guy who's now a friend of mine, but he in Canada. I was doing this talk in this bar, and he got up at the back, big tall guy, and he said, I call bullshit and all this. This is all just bullshit, rubbish, da da da. And it was near the end of the talk anyway, so I was kind of wrapped up. And I thought, okay, actually, I'm going to go and find out who this guy is. I'm only in town for one night. May as well see, see what's going on. So I, I bought a drink, bought him a drink. We sat down, and it turns out he's, um, he's actually he's a radio guy in Canada for all you Canadians, and his name is escaping me right now, but it's the biggest Christian talk show in Canada, which means about five people listen, right? But uh, um, Drew, I think it's Drew, uh, but he, as I talked to him, he said, he said, like, I'm really sorry, so I'm really sorry about that. He said, um, he says, I have this Christian network, I've, I've got these doubts, I'm not sure about what I'm doing. He said, and when I shouted at you, he said, I, I was just a... Uh, I guess it was because you were touching too close to something and I wasn't ready to do and I wasn't where I wasn't ready to go. And we, I say I've been on a show now a number of times and he's, he's a friend. And, uh, but but it, was, it was interesting that his aggressive disagreement was a symptom not of disagreement but of agreement. If someone disagrees with you in a healthy way, they just go, oh yeah, I don't really agree with you and you talk on. It doesn't, doesn't do anything. But when there's an aggressive disagreement, that's usually evidence that you're, you're touching on something, that it's actually not disagreement with you, it's uh, you're, you're actually saying something that they know, but they want to avoid knowing. And I had that as well with this woman who really went at me aggressively in a festival in the UK. Uh, it was funny because I was talking and I got off the stage and Padraig Otuma got on, if you know Padraig, and he did a poem. And as I was sitting at the side of the stage to go back on, she came up to me and started shouting at me. And it's like this big festival thing. And I'm like, I have to go back up, I have to go back up. I said, but we'll talk later, we'll talk after. And I went back up and I saw her waiting there and I was like really nervous. And, uh, and then, so I went to another group of people who were waiting to talk and I talked to them for a while and I knew she was waiting and waiting and waiting to talk to me. Um, but then when they dissipated, she came up to me, and it was the same issue, and it's not always like this, but more often than you'd think. It sounds so tr trite, like how could this be true? If this was in a movie, it would be so obvious it would be wrong. But she did the same thing. She said, listen, I've just gone through a divorce, single parent, it's really, really tough, and all, you, you just brought up all of this stuff, like, and, I, and I, I couldn't cope, and I was, I'm so angry, um, but, but actually it's because it's it's precisely because what you're saying is resonating and so that's that's the trick i'm always trying to find is that's called reaction formation 
Reaction formation is whenever someone has an extreme reaction against something, it is sometimes a reaction to the opposite. If someone is very narcissistic, it's often because they hate themselves. If someone is very certain, I mentioned about apologetics, someone's always reading Josh McDowell, it's probably because they're riven with doubt. Um, these are reaction formations. And so that's a, that's a common one. Um, and I'm fascinated by how to get around defense mechanisms. That's what, and there's a great book called Why Do I Do That? Uh, and it's, it's a good book because it just, I forget the name of the author, but it lists about 14 or 15 defense mechanisms that people use. And I think it's good because communities have defense mechanisms as well. Splitting, where goodies and baddies, you know, you split the world into they're all bad and I'm all good. That's a defense against suffering. Uh, reaction formation, acting out. There's lots of these defenses. Projection, I love projection, where, or uh, displacement, where you know people say, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I'm an asshole. No, I think you think you're an asshole, <laughs> but you can't cope with that, so you put it onto the other. You know, you find it so often whenever you see what, well, I know what society thinks. Sometimes you can think that, but often when you say something like that, what you're saying is what you think of yourself. Uh, because here's the weird thing is, if you get annoyed at what some pe you think other people are thinking about you, there's something libidinally in you that's invested in that. Because if they're saying something that, that you don't care about, it doesn't matter if someone thinks that I'm of the devil or something, because that doesn't interest me at all. It's got no libidinal connection. But if they say something about me that, is, uh, that I think about myself, then it connects. And the weirdest thing is when I actually literally and it happens all the time. Like people in therapy say, oh, I know what you're thinking to the therapist. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I shouldn't phone my ex-girlfriend. You think I'm just doing it because I want sex and I'm lonely. Okay, let's <laughs> Okay, right, you know. Uh, okay, let, why do you think that? It's like, it's, it's amazing. It's like, I'm not thinking it. You know, I had a dream and it was definitely not about my mother. Okay, <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> um, so these are really interesting ways to go, like we all have defense, and defenses are good. We need them to defend against uh, influx of terror and difficulty, but we have to lure them. So yeah, so you were just asking what ones I've seen in my life. I suppose that's the, that's the common one about my early work. The doubt, ambiguity, and complexity is, uh, the defense against it is often, I think, because people just, it's already there and they don't know what to do with it. And also, by the way, I'll, and I'll give you an example of someone, sadly, who took their own life a number of years ago, and as somebody I knew, who, he, he was probably suffering a little bit from psychosis, and he said to me once, he said, I can't not believe. He didn't use the word I do once. He's a very smart guy, and we used to argue back and forth, and as soon as he said, I went, oh, something else is going on here. It's like, he was at a place where his belief held him together, and actually, in those situations, my job is not to get them to doubt. Because sometimes a belief structure is holding the person together. And what you actually have to do is just help them find a belief structure that is a little bit less oppressive to them, a little bit better. So it, there's, a, there's depending on whether you're working with neurotic structures or psychotic structures, you have to do different work. Neurotic structures are great. You can just get into the doubt and the unknowing. But, but some people, if they question their doubt, they will go into a place of utter, utter breakdown.
Oh, yeah. That's true. So there's, yeah, there's two elements. Like, one is, of course, there's the necessary, like, there's a necessary moment when the breakdown of trust happens. I mean, that's part of, of growing up is that, is that break. And if that doesn't happen, kind of terrible things can occur. That's, a, that's another thing where separation doesn't occur enough. Um, I say it's the, it's the, you know, the old thing, Jesus was Irish, because uh, he, like, he lived with his mum till he was 30, and uh, she thought he was God, right? Um, the, uh, the idea that if you don't have a break from your family, uh, you become Irish. Uh, and then, you know, you, with the other, the, psych, the technical name is psychotic. The psychotic is someone whose ego hasn't formed because they haven't had a break. However, on the other side of it, if it's too traumatic a break, um, it's really devastating. It's, you know, if, if you do not have any stability in your family, um, then that causes all sorts, of, all sorts of problems as well. So there is this necessary separation, but it has to be a healthy kind of separation. But another thing that is beautiful is you know, a piece of driftwood with you are accepted doesn't really work, right? But, but, but a priest or a counselor or something like that, they sometimes become the embodiment of grace. Just when you sit and you listen to someone, you don't say anything, you look them in the eye and you listen, and you embody that you are accepted, that is powerful, and that is healing. So weirdly, we kind of need individuals to become avatars of grace. Even if they're not great in their own personal lives, they can still be symbolically that experience of I am accepted uh, just by being quiet, and by looking, like, that's why, you know this thing where if you look in someone's eyes for a few minutes, this whole thing is quite popular on YouTube, you can look at each other in the eye for five minutes, and often it, people start breaking down, it's a very emotional thing. And I think one of the reasons for that is because at first you're looking at somebody, and then you're looking at nobody. You're, you're just experiencing being looked at by the universe. It's like, because the particularity goes away. At first you become very aware of the person's face, Right, the first minute, you're very aware of who you're looking at, and then a couple of minutes in, you couldn't tell the color of their eyes. You're looking straight at their eyes, but you wouldn't know what color they were. You you experience being looked at, in and 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 that is a that is a very powerful experience. Not an individual looking at you, but really the universe looking at you. And uh, I think that's also a good rule for like the the authority, the priest or whatever is a is this weird embodiment of a, of a, of grace. Um, but anyway, any other thoughts, questions, comments? Oh, hi. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yep. Sorry, hmm. uh, I, 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 I'm a mystic. I wouldn't be here had I not had a brief mystical experience when I was young. Hmm. Now, that leads me on to saying that you talk about the mystics from the point of view of them having a new philosophical idea, hmm. as I do. Yeah. I look at the mystics saying, we have had this experience. Words paint yes. in talking about it. It's led me on to thinking when you're talking about marriage, and I'm thinking about 
Marion seems to talk about there being an ontological uh, gap, mm -hmm. an ontological purity. I'm thinking from a mystical point of view, is that a, an actual purity, or is it merely a shortage? Yeah, and he 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 would say I think he would say it's a plentitude. So that's the so Marion's notion is a he, so Jean Luc Marion uh, he was a student of Derrida's, very very brilliant French thinker. Um, he talks about this saturated phenomenon. So for him, the incomprehension is from a, yeah the plentitude of being, and that that's the that's the basic difference between Derrida and Marion. Uh, so in a nutshell, and you're absolutely right, like the mystics are not, the reason why I use Anselm is because that's a great way to intellectually, or sorry, Anselm, yeah, to intellectually articulate the notion of this beyond being. Um, and yeah, for me, the mystics have like uh, epistemological incomprehension, which comes from the saturatedness of something beyond finding out. Um, experiential uh, bedazzlement, which weirdly means an experience that is a limit experience, an experience that is, and I'll come back to that in a second, but, but an experience of something that is beyond our ability to, to sensitize, to experience, which trauma is that, by the way. When a trauma happens, a trauma is an event that is too much, there's a too muchness to trauma. And so that's why you, often you can't remember what happened. You have conflicting narratives within yourself, just like the biblical text is four gospels, because there's a type of traumatic event that's, you know, that degenerates these contrasting readings. And then existential transformation, a, a change in your being. So I always like that, like I think the mystics, yeah, they have that, that element. The, the, the experiential bedazzlement's interesting. Marion calls it paradox. And it is the type of experience of something that you cannot experience. And one way of thinking about it is when you look at a sunset or you're out for a walk in the mountains, you see something beautiful but the moment that you experience the sublime, the notion of the sublime, is when what you see actually uh, is a type of negative experience for something that you haven't experienced, a beauty that you cannot conceptualize. So it's, it's melancholic in a way. It's like, it's so beautiful, and yet also you kind of like, it's, a, it's, a, it's an aroma of a beauty that is beyond. So yeah, that's, that's the mystical thing. And yes, I have been quite critical of the mystics in the past. That is very true. And uh, I have a certain, I have a, lo I have a loving kind of like, uh, you know, critique of the mystics. But actually in this, in this one, I've, been, I've given them a very, I've been very nice, you know, because actually that's, that was part of icons going like, you have that view. And I think that's what Tillich is in a way. Tillich's not a mystic, but Tillich's ground of being. So for Paul Tillich, for example, you cannot argue to God, right? But the very fact that you can argue shows that we share something in common, which is a belief in, in uh, intelligibility, in truth. Uh, and that is, in a sense, what he calls the God beyond God. Um, he, his book, The Courage to Be, is beautiful. So for him, the ground of being is, uh, he does all of this critique. He has this beautiful phrase. He says, we're the God who arises after, the, basically the God who arises in the anxiety of meaninglessness itself. Uh, I'll need to look at the very last line of the courage to be, but it's something like the God who arises after God disappears in meaninglessness. And can I just say very quickly what he means? And then I know it's, but we can get finished soon. But um, I, uh, it's, it's really interesting. Tillich basically says that 
and, uh, nothingness hits us in various ways. Uh, very quickly, gr uh, guilt, which is a lack of being. I am not living up to who I should live up to. So that's guilt. So guilt is just a term for I'm not living up to something. And meaning uh, meaninglessness, the idea that my life is not meaningful. I lack meaning in my life. There is a lack of some kind. Um, oh, and the first one is death, which is ultimately I lack life, right? And the most basic form of nothingness is I fear death. And religion can answer that to a certain extent, even if it's not true. Religion and stoicism in different ways. Stoicism also gives you an answer to that. Don't fear it, because as long as you're alive, you're not dead. And when you're dead, you're not around. So the never the twain shall meet. So don't fear death. That's, you know, the stoics in a nutshell. And um, uh, so you can, you can overcome that with belief. And then guilt. This is Luther's big insight. Luther overcame guilt with the idea of grace, grace whatever. But how do, you, how do you overcome meaninglessness? If you think the universe is meaningless, then you can't kind of go, although some evangelicals try this, which is I have doubt, but in the midst of my doubt, God does not doubt me. Have you ever heard a sermon like that? It's quite funny because it's kind of like, it gives lip service to doubt, but there's meta-belief that, that structures it. You know, um, like being, a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's the illusion of danger. As my friend Jay once said, uh, it's like a dark night of the soul with a nightlight switched on. I always like that phrase. Um, uh, but, but Tillich says, when you fully go into meaninglessness, and for him, the 20th century, and I'm going to talk about this tonight, I think, the 20th century is the century in the West where meaninglessness enters into the artistic, philosophical, literary structure itself. So it's a real thing. For him, it's genuine, the genuine experience of meaninglessness. But then he says, but there is an authenticity to it. There is a sense in which you do not want to believe something for the sake of it. There's something that you're affirming, truth, authenticity, courage. And he says, in the very embrace of these values, he says, you're standing on the ground of being. It's very, very clever. So he says, you don't try to answer the meaninglessness. You embrace it. And in embracing it, you're affirming something that transcends it. That's kind of a mystical kind of approach. Uh, one or two more questions, and we should break. Anything else? What, um, what, how did you come up with the term hierarchy? Oh, yeah, that's good. Oh, yeah, that's a good, a good question. It's, it's, it's your iteration of hierarchy. Uh, how, how, how is hierarchy specifically hierarchy? Yes. Um, so, pyrotheology, um, that's, that's a good one on one question as well. It's like, what's the, yeah. Um, it, it actually, Chris Fry, who you may meet, he might be around at some point, uh, he's a psychotherapeutic psychoanalyst, very involved in ICON. He came up with the term. Uh, I, I, as we usually did, we would meet once a week, and we would talk about stuff, we'd come up with a gathering. And I came in with this quote from Bonaventura Doretti, who said, the only church that illuminates is a burning church. And I thought, oh, this is a brilliant phrase, we should do something with this. And someone was saying, yeah, we could create a funeral pyre with a good smoke coming out of it. We wore burnt clothes and we, get, we started to create, we give everyone matches, start a fire. And we had, this fire, we had a fire alarm in the building. There's a fire inside, please step in, all of this kind of stuff. And then, and then, and then Chris said, let's call it pyrotheology. And I liked the term. And then it kind of stuck. And I thought, you know, I need a phrase to maybe kind of like encapsulate and if you, if you want to start a movement, the best thing is to think of a name. Don't try to start a movement, just think of a name, and then it'll, it'll start to mean something in the future. So I picked a name, and it had no content, and I'm thinking, right, let's now, let's now populate this with some content. And that's what we're doing here as well. We are all part of populating that word with content. And 
now it's gradually becoming something. That's the amazing thing. You pretend it's something long enough and it starts to become it. Fake it till you make it, right? That's the philosophical version of it. Um, and it's beginning to become something. And what I think it is, and this is the danger actually, is that once it becomes more concrete, it's more easy to reject, right? Um, uh, and, and it's interesting because you, you're part of the What is Pyrotheology website or Facebook group. And that's an interesting group. We should talk about it at some point because in some ways that's just a place where people talk about their doubt and their unknowing. It's a place of free, freedom to do that. Yes, yes, but it's you know paratheology now is there's a there's a there's a lot of theory behind what it is that that um, that you know it, like it's not just about having a bit of doubt about your faith. Everyone has that something more specific, and I would say it's in the tradition of what's called radical theology, and what makes it potentially distinct is its its technological side, its practice, um, it's the the uh, the liturgical dimension of it. I think that's partly what. Um, is it kind of gives it something within radical theology. So, uh, yeah, and I think that's what it, it is within this tradition called radical theology. Some of you will know what that is. You're more theoretical, some, but that's, that's the tradition. And I'm going to talk about that a bit tonight. Uh, any, last, any other questions before we break for lunch? Okay, very good.